Yo, this is the Ancient Texan. Uh, June 5th or something, Friday. It's been kind of a rough couple of weeks here in America. Drug riots kind of st- taken over. Well, we're not going to go into that except indirectly. We're reading a book, When Things Fall Apart. Maybe that's appropriate. By Pima Cotran or something like that. It's it's a book of um, based in Buddha. And we're on chapter 7. And it's on hopelessness and death. I imagine, and that's what the black people feel, hopelessness and the way that uh, our society has been treating them for a long time. If we're willing to give up hope that insecurity and pain can be exterminated, then we can have the courage to relax with the groundlessness of our situation. This is the first step on the path. Turning your mind toward the Dharma does not bring security or confirmation. Turning your mind toward the Dharma does not bring any ground to stand on. In fact, when your mind turns toward the Dharma, you fearlessly acknowledge impermanence and change and beginning to get the knack of hopelessness. Wow. Sounds like the black people need Buddha. We all do, but they seem to be on the front burner. In Tibet, there's an interesting word, Yi Tang Chi. The Yi part means completely and the rest means exhausted. Together, Yi Tang Chi means totally tired out. Or you might say totally fed up. It describes an experience of complete hopelessness, of completely giving up hope. It's the beginning of the beginning. Without giving up hope that there's somewhere better to be, that there's someone better to be, we will never relax with where we are or who we are. Well, this this whole cha- uh, chapter is kind of hard to swallow, but it's you know you always say things. The word "should" is kind of the ap- opposite of this chapter. Things should be this way or should be that way, but they are like they are, and you have to be accepting of that's the reality that you find yourself in. And find peace in whatever that reality might be. Uh, and if you're dependent on a future heaven or better place, or it should be, um, you're never going to be okay. You somehow have to find solace, peace, whatever it is you're looking for in the right now. 
The word mindfulness describes being right where we are. Yi Tang Shi, however, is not so easily digested. It expe- expresses the renunciation that's essential for the spiritual path. To think that we can finally get it all together is unrealistic. To seek for some lasting security is futile. Resistance is futile. My Rick from Star Trek, or from um, Star Trek, whichever one. Believing in a solid, separate self. Continuing to seek pleasure and avoid pain, thinking that someone out there is to blame for our pain. One has to get totally fed up with these ways of thinking. We need someone else to blame to make it through today. Um, You're always going to be in that state. Suffering begins to dissolve when we can question the belief or hope that there's anywhere to hide. We've tried a thousand ways to hide and a thousand ways to tie up all those loose ends and the ground just keeps moving under us. Trying to get lasting security teaches us a lot because if we never try to do it, we never notice that it can't be done. Turning our minds toward Dharma speeds up the process of discovery. At every turn, we realize once again that it is completely hopeless. We can't get any ground under our feet. Well, I have a hard time actually swallowing that. I think we get ground under our feet. It just keeps shifting. You know, get knocked off the mountain and go back up again. Um, But I do agree that we can't depend on our happiness in in being on top of the mountain. um, Because we're not going to stay there. This next paragraph is, I found, really cool. The difference between theism and non-theism is not whether one does or does not believe in God. Okay, hold on a second. Theism and non-theism doesn't depend on whether you believe in God? Okay, hold that thought. It is an issue that applies to everyone, including Buddhist and non-Buddhist. Theism is a deep-seated conviction that there's some hand to hold. If we just do the right thing, someone will appreciate us and take care of us. It means thinking there's always going to be a babysitter available when we need one. We are all inclined to abdicate our responsibilities and delegate our authority to something outside ourselves. So theism is a belief that there's a caring God, that there's someone that's going to rescue you, there's going to be a heaven reward, Um, someone cares, some benevolent force exists in the universe. 
Non-theism is relaxing with the ambiguity and uncertainty of the present moment without reaching for anything to protect ourselves. We sometimes think that Dharma is something outside of ourselves, something to believe in, something to measure up to. However, Dharma isn't a belief, it isn't dogma. It is total appreciation of impermanence and change. In other words, we can take what we're doing here, reading about uh, the beliefs of Buddhist and make that into a religion like it's going to save us and we're back in the same place of believing that it's a religion. I'm taking from this that it's Dharma is more a way of life, a way of acceptance. Um, like when you meditate you learn to quiet your mind um, and you're present with yourself. It's a way of taking that into everyday um, existence and your reality. Non-theism is finally realizing that there's no babysitter that you can count on. You just get a good one and then he or she is gone. Non-theism is realizing that it's not just babysitters that come and go. The whole of life is like that. This is the truth, and the truth is inconvenient. Well, reminds me of the inconvenient truth of Al Gore. We're all addicted to hope. Hope that the doubt and mystery will go away. This addiction has a painful effect on society. A society based on lots of people addicted to getting ground under their feet is not a very compassionate place. The link there between you know looking for that babysitter, looking for that benevolent force and believing that it exists is counterproductive to making this a compassionate world. I can see that a little bit. If you're thinking this benevolent force is out there um, and that it's not up to us to make this a compassionate place because this benevolent force is there taking care of things, I can see that does not contribute well to compassion. The first noble truth of Buddha is that when we feel suffering, it doesn't mean that something is wrong. Wow, that is a novel thought. When you feel suffering, it doesn't mean something's wrong. It's just the way it is. What a relief. Finally, someone told the truth. Suffering is part of life, and we don't have to feel it's happening because we personally made the wrong move. Um, the Bible story of Job, uh, that God curses him and then uh, rewards him and it's all based on a bet with the devil. 
kind of this idea that there's a benevolent force that can withdraw their benevolence or give their benevolence based on how well you do. That's very much part of our society and is very part, much part of the judgment that we give uh, other people when we see their own hard time. We think, well, they deserve that probably because they didn't they're, have a lazy ass. word in Tibet for hope is Rewa. The word for fear is Dokpa. More commonly, Redok is used, which combines the two. Hope and fear is a feeling with two sides. As long as there's one, there's always the other. This Redok is the root of our pain. When we feel pain, we want to change things. We hope for something better instead of accepting the pain and being with it. In a non-theistic state of mind, abandoning hope is an affirmation, the beginning of the beginning. You could even put abandoned hope on your refrigerator door. Wow. Wonder what my wife would think of that. Abandoned hope are my kids. Hmm, that's something to think about. Put abandoned hope on your refrigerator. Somebody out there in Ireland ought to do that. Oh, by the way, there's now like 2 or 3% from England and 7% from Ireland. Thank you out there in Ireland. We're small but growing. Hope and fear come from a feeling that we lack something. They come from a sense of poverty. We can't simply relax with ourselves. We hold on to hope, and hope robs us of the present moment. Rather than letting our negativity get the better of us, we could acknowledge that right now we feel like a piece of shit and not be squeamish about taking a good look. That's a compassionate thing to do. That's the brave thing to do. We could smell that piece of shit. We could feel it. What is its texture, color, and shape? I I go through this um, most evenings, and I don't know if it's because I'm dreading going to work the next day or what, but... Every evening, first, I try to get my dog calmed down, and that's kind of, he's an old 17-year-old. Kind of hard to get him calmed down, and he needs to calm down, otherwise he's pacing all night and keeping me awake. So I sit on the couch and get him to calm down, then I flick on some Netflix, uh, get myself some wine, then that's not enough, I need some chocolate, and then I'm sitting there and thinking, well, what else snack? What I'm doing is avoiding the anxiousness or I don't know what it it is I'm avoiding because I effectively avoid it. Um, But it has something to do with getting up in the morning and starting to work. Like this morning, I'm not working. I'm doing this. I work from home, so there's no immediate consequence. And this produces anxiety, but every evening... 
I have this anxiety because I want to be writing novels and doing podcasts and writing blogs. But instead, I'm getting up and designing furnaces. And I like that job too. But it, it's a matter of balance. So much time and efforts been put into work in my life. There's so many things unexpressed that I I want to do. So it shows up every evening before bed because I've just lived another life that's out of balance. So I killed, instead of dealing with that pain and discomfort, I get another glass of wine, I pet my dog, I flick through... I flick through Netflix channels. Anyway, I expect a lot of you know that. We kill the pain and don't live with it. We just, we don't smell the shit and figure out what the hell's going on inside of us. We hold on to this hope that uh, everything's going to be rosy and I don't have to feel that pain. We can't just jump over ourselves as if we were not there. It's better to take a straight look at all our hopes and fears. Then some kind of confidence in our basic sanity arises. Okay, I should do that. That is where renunciation enters the picture. Renunciation of the hope that our experience could be different, renunciation of the hope that we could be better. The Buddhist monistic rules that advise renouncing liquor, renouncing sex, and so on are not pointing out that these things are inherently bad or immoral, but that we use them as babysitters, painkillers. That's what I call it. We use them as a way to escape. I know exactly what they're talking about. I've used liquor and sex most of my life to avoid uh, the reality of my existence. And I think I'm happier than most people. But there's certainly some something I could learn from this. So I'm willing to think about this and give it a try even though it kind of goes against the grain of you know, what I've been taught, taught most of my life. Give up hope, put that on the refrigerator. Mm. I have to think about that. The real thing that we renounce is a tenacious hope that we could be saved from being who we are. Renunciation is a teaching to inspire us to investigate what's happening every time we grab something because we can't stand to face what's coming. Wow. Renunciation is a teaching to inspire us to investigate what's happening every time we grab something because we can't stand to face what's coming. You know, when I'm able to do that, I've, I've always been overweight. Uh, and it mainly is because I grab food. Mostly these days used to be wine and liquor, but these days it's mostly food. 
because uh, I can't stand to face what's coming the next day and that I'm not writing my novels. Once I was sitting next to a man on an airplane who kept interrupting our conversation to take various bills. I asked him, what is it you're taking? He answered, they were tranquilizers. I said, oh, are you nervous? And he said, no, not now, but I think when I get home, I'm going to be. Boy, do I know that. I do it preventative eating. I'm not hungry, but I'm eating to avoid the hunger that I know is coming because I want to avoid discomfort. And I think I do that uh, a lot. I think that's kind of a American way of life. Might even be that way over in Ireland. You can laugh at this story, but what happens with you when you begin to feel uneasy, unsettled, queasy? Notice the panic. Notice when you instantly grab for something. That grabbing is based on hope. Not grabbing is called hopelessness. In other words, I can't get rid of the problem by grabbing some chocolate or pouring another glass of wine. Wow. I know that intellectually. I don't know it emotionally and uh, at my core, I still pour the bottle of wine bottle of wine, glass of wine, and Freudian slip. If hope and fear are two sides of one coin, so are hopelessness and confidence. If we're willing to give up hope, then insecurity and pain can be exterminated, I might add and quit trying to do it, then we can have the courage to relax with the groundlessness of our situation. Wow, maybe the pain just gets big enough that uh, we do something about it. Mm. We could save ourselves a lot of time by taking this message very seriously right now. Begin the journey without hope of getting ground under your feet. Begin with hopelessness. All anxiety, all dissatisfaction, all the reasons for hoping that our experience could be different are rooted in our fear of death. Okay, this is kind of like explaining where all the anxiety, why we feel like a piece of shit. Life is like getting into a boat is just about to sail out to sea and sink. We know we're getting in a boat that's not seaworthy. I can see how that makes us anxious. But it's very hard, no matter how much we hear about it, to believe in our own death. So, I can see that we don't I can see in my wife when I talk to her that she doesn't ever want to consider the fact that she's going to die. She's going to live forever. I say it a lot talking about death and refer to it. Um, A lot of mine, though, is kind of jesting and 
joking and making fun of it and like well you're going to have to take care of that when I die just kind of to bug other people I'm probably not dealing with the reality <clears throat> any better than anybody else is we don't go so far to say no way I'm not going to die because of course we know that we are but it definitely will be later that's the biggest hope Rinpoche, pardon my way I say it, gave a lecture entitled Death in Everyday Life. We are raised in a culture that fears death and hides it from us. Nevertheless, we experience it all the time. We experience it in the form of disappointment, in the, in the form of things not working out. Death in everyday life could be defined as experiencing all the things that we don't want. Our, mar- our marriage isn't working out, our job isn't coming together. Having a relationship with death in everyday life means that we begin to be able to wait, to relax with insecurity, with panic, with embarrassment, with things not working out. As the, day, as the years go by, we don't call the babysitter quite so fast. I have one glass of wine instead of two. I'm realizing things don't work out, that things, you know, come together and then they fall apart. Death and hopelessness provide proper motivation. Proper motivation for living an insightful, compassionate life. Death and hopelessness provide proper motivation. Proper motivation for living an insightful, compassionate life. But most of the time, warding off death is our biggest biggest motivation. Time is passing. It is natural as the seasons changing and day turning into night. But getting old, getting sick, losing what we love. We don't see those events as natural occurrences. We want to ward off that sense of death, no matter what. Relaxing with the present moment, relaxing with hopelessness, relaxing with death, not resisting the fact that things end that things pass, that things have no lasting substance. Everything is changing all the time. That's the basic message. Hmm. That's clear enough to me. When we talk about hopelessness and death, we're talking about facing the facts, no escaping. We may have addictions of all kinds, but we cease to believe in them as a gateway to happiness. So many times we've indulged the short-term pleasure of addiction. We've done it so many times that we know that grasping at this hope is a source of misery that makes us a short-term, that makes a short-term pleasure a long-term hell. Wow. So this is saying that 
avoiding I do every night the extra food, the extra wine. Uh, having sexual fantasies, all of that, um, keeps me from dealing with, um, discomfort and anxieties. And one might wonder if one, if I would sit with the anxiety and the discomfort, if my life would change, that they would serve their function. Because, you know, like, you have pain because uh, it's telling you to get your hand off the stove. It's telling you to change what you're doing. And if we keep putting salve on the burn, putting our fingers in ice water, maybe we don't make the changes that would make our lives better and more uh, enjoyable. Maybe we don't learn... uh, to sit with the discomfort and then we're also not present for the pleasure and the joy of life. Hmm. Definitely something to think about. But if we totally experience hopelessness, giving up all hope of alternatives to the present moment, we can have a joyful relationship with our lives, an honest, direct relationship, one that no longer ignores the reality of impermanence and death. Well, that's kind of saying what I was just saying. If you don't let yourself experience the present moment, not only the feelings of hopelessness and anxiety, uh, it's not an honest relationship. And perhaps it doesn't let you feel the joy in your life. If you don't learn to be present in the present moment, then be with your feelings. Basically, you're avoiding living. Uh, Every time we avoid pain, we're avoiding the reality of what is. The The hopelessness of what is sometimes, although I think that's kind of a strong word. Hmm. Well, the next chapter we're going to have is Eight Worldly Dharmas. I have no idea what that's about. Well, I hope you're enjoying. This is the ancient Texan and hoping that we feel all the anxiety in our world right now, both from the COVID and the race riots and the racism. We feel the pain of all that. Perhaps we change our world. We will find out. Of course, this teacher says that if we get that right, then we'll screw something else up. But let's have an honest relationship with what's going on and compassion for our fellow man that's in this boat with us going out to the ocean that's going to sink. This is the ancient Texan. Namaste.